This podcast is a presentation of Gateway Fellowship, Paulsville, Washington. Experience community, find hope. Check us out at gatewayfellowship.com. I'm a little taller than this. There we go. Well, it's great to be back with you guys. And uh, many of you we've seen in India, or some of you recently in India. We were there together in, uh, was that August? Yeah, we were there together in August. And so... Uh, just uh, appreciate all that Gateway does and uh, appreciate your heart for the world. You know, one of the questions to ask in times like this is, uh, how much should we care and why should we care? I mean, we got a lot going on in our own nation, got a lot going on in our own families and our own communities. It'd be easy to look and say, hey, maybe this is a season that we should uh, just take care of us. Coming out of COVID, many people... Uh, you know, facing lockdowns and school shutdowns and churches uh, being shut down for short times. And maybe we just need to take a season just to think about us for a while. And uh, I want to give kind of a biblical response to that today. So I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. So one of the first things to notice here is that we might come to the assumption that God prefers to eat meat over vegetables. And that's not necessarily the truth. I don't know. But it's not necessarily the truth. It's not that God is looking down on vegetables and thinks more highly of meat. At this point in Scripture, there has no, been no commands about sacrifice and offerings. God actually hasn't asked for anything from anybody. So whatever is being brought now is simply being brought by people to acknowledge God. God, we love you and we want to acknowledge you. This is what I have and so I want to give it. And so God is not looking down on Cain's offering because it's not the kind of thing he likes. It is that there's something in the way that Cain is offering it. There's something in an attitude. There's something in his heart. There's something not off. I want to tell you that God to this day Every offering that is brought from a pure and generous heart is always acceptable to the Lord. Doesn't matter how big, how small. Doesn't matter how good your singing is. It doesn't matter how talented you are. When we give to God, God accepts it based on the attitude of our heart, not on the offering itself. So God's not looking down on Cain. He's not trying to pick a fight with Cain. There's just something not quite right there. Verse 6, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. How many of you, every time you go on social media, you realize sin is crouching at your door? It's crouching. It's trying to get you frustrated. It's trying to get you angry. It's trying to trap you and tempt you. It's trying to pull you in to somebody else's fight. It's crouching at the door. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while 
they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Now this is theologically a point you need to understand because this often happens in Scripture. It's a deep theological thought you need to wrap your head around. God does not ask questions because he lacks information. Does that make sense? God does not ask questions because he needs information. If God is asking a question, then God is offering an opportunity. I mean, we don't know what happened. Cain and Abel went out to the field, and it may have been just two brothers getting in a normal fight. Hey, Cain, you remember yesterday? God accepted my offering. He didn't accept yours. You're a loser. <laughs> Who knows why they got in a fight? But they did. Cain lost his head. Cain kills his brother. And in this moment, God is offering an opportunity to Cain. Cain, where's your brother? There's an opportunity. God, I lost my mind. <laughs> Forgive me, Lord. God is always offering opportunities to us. God knows every thought that you have. He knows everything that you've done. He is not confused about our sinfulness, and yet He constantly reaches out to us with grace and mercy, offering opportunity for repentance and forgiveness. God is offering this. But just like us, Cain didn't uh, take the offer. He tries to deflect. He tries to turn away. And here is his famous response. I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? You could paraphrase that and say, am I responsible for him? Why are you asking me about Abel? I've got enough issues of my own to deal with. i got a family now. I've got kids now. i got my own issues, God. i got all these fields that need to be harvested. i got stuff I'm doing. Why are you asking me about Abel? Am I responsible for Abel? I mean, why are we here talking about India today? Why are we here talking about Africa and the world? Don't you see what's happening in our country? Don't you see what we're dealing with? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I really responsible for them? i got to take care of us. You see, us and them is the beginning of sin. That's where sin starts. Where we've got to determine who's in and who's out. But this isn't how we were created. The Bible says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and He saw all that He created, and God looked at it and said, it is good. And then it says, after God had created man and woman in His image, all His creation, He looked over all of His creation, and it wasn't just good. He looked at the whole, the totality of it all together, and He said, it's very good. So do you realize this? Alone you were good. Together you're very good. Alone we're good, but together we're very good. That God created us in such a unique way that the fullness of God is only revealed through the whole and not through the individual. 
God created us to be a part of His reflection on this earth. He created us to have relationship with Him. You know, people sometimes question about the Trinity. You know, like, man, the Trinity doesn't make sense. I want to tell you anything outside of the Trinity doesn't make sense. Because God, by essence and nature, is love, and love cannot be expressed in a vacuum. There's no love without an object of that love. And so from the beginning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lived in perfect relationship, perfect unity, perfect love, and then the Godhead decided, let's create others who can share in this relationship with us. And when God created us, He did something incredibly unique that none of the other of creation can do. You see, in all the history of science, in all the history of the world, the world has yet to find a vegan tiger. They haven't been located yet. There's no such thing as a great white shark that goes through a moral dilemma. You know these commercials like that PETA puts out? And, and maybe they see one of the commercials. They're like, man, I can't eat seals anymore. Look at how cute they are. I just can't do it. And so the, the shark decides, I, I think I'm going to eat kelp from here on out. Animals aren't capable of having a moral dilemma. An orange tree can't decide one day, you know, apples look better. I think I'm going to grow apples. Creation can only do what creation was created to do. They have to be what they are. Animals don't have choices. Trees don't have choices. But, but God made you and I in His image. He breathed something different into us so that I can decide and have a moral dilemma and decide not to eat meat. I can look and decide not to do certain things. I, I can make decisions in my life. Because I was created in the image of God, I have a part of my moral fabric the ability to make choices. Does that make sense? And the Bible says that from the beginning, God created man and woman, and it sounds a little archaic to our ears, but, but hear me out. And it says that man and woman were naked and unashamed. That's what relationships were in the beginning. It was man and woman had nothing to hide. There's nothing to cover up. There's no animosity. There's no envy. There's no anger. I'm not worried about you. You're not worried about me. We are living in perfect relationship with God, in perfect relationship with one another. There's nothing to hide, nothing to shield. We are in perfect unity with God and with one another. I mean, how many of you have ever walked into church? And I won't say how many of you. How many of you know somebody who's ever walked into church and there's somebody that you're just not right with? And so you kind of walk in and look which side of the church are they sitting on. So I, because I just don't even want to talk to them today. Because I'm hiding. I, I'm, I'm shielding. I'm clothing. Because I got something in my heart. And that's, 
That doesn't, how many of you know it doesn't feel good to live like that? It doesn't feel good to know if somebody's angry with me, I'm angry with somebody, and you go, can you imagine living in a world of unashamed? Living in a world where my every thought towards you was good. Your every thought towards me is good. That is what God is describing for us that you and I were created to be. And one day, that's where we will be. When God establishes his kingdom, we'll be there, but we're not there today. So here's man and woman created in this perfect unity with him. And the Bible tells us that every evening God would come down to walk with them. They were just created for relationship with God. Created to spend time with God. You know, I know some people think in heaven we're going to sing all the time. I I'm glad we're not. <laughs> I'm a terrible singer. You know, in eternity we're going to do what we were created to do, which is be a gardener who spends time with God. <laughs> so if you don't like the outdoors, you're not going to like eternity. <laughs> you're just going to spend time gardening looking after creation, spending time with God in perfect unity with God and with one another. That's what we were created for. Just relationship with God. But as the enemy always does, the enemy comes along. And, and because God loves us, he gives us freedom. And there's, think of it as a mechanism of freedom that is in the garden. There's two trees. Everything else is yours. These two things don't eat from these two trees. These are mechanisms, God giving away of choice to people because he loves them. And how many of you know freedom is the most dangerous idea in the world? How many of you have gotten to the point that you had a 16-year-old and for the first time you had to put keys in their hands? And you're looking at their half-formed brain through their darkened eyes. And you're saying, now, now be careful, knowing good and well they don't know how to be careful. They're 16. But love forces you to give the keys, right? I mean, what I wanted to do for my kids was to lock them up from the age of 13 to the age of 25 when I think maybe they can make decent choices now. But love doesn't allow me to do that. Love gives freedom. Love gives choice, even when it's dangerous. And God loves us and is not coercive, so God gives us choices. So in the garden, there's two trees, and along comes the enemy. Hey, is God really looking out for you? Does God really have your best interest at heart? You know, actually, there's a better way out there. You can be a God to yourself. You can live life on your own terms. You can be your own master. Why follow him? God's trying to keep you from good things. Does that sound like it's still happening today? Man and woman give in. And so here comes God. Comes down to the garden like He always does. Just here to spend time with Adam and Eve. And there's this haunting question. I want you to hear the, the broken heart of God. As He comes down to the garden. Adam, Eve, where are you? Where are you? Now remember, why does God ask questions? Opportunity. God's not lacking information. He knows what's happened. He knows where they are. And yet here is God looking down on a people who have rejected them and he longs and calls to them, where are you? Some people talk about the day they found Jesus. How many of you have ever told people about the day you found Jesus? 
that means it sounded like he was an old man lost in the woods somewhere. <laughs> I want to tell you, you didn't find Jesus. Before you were ever looking for him, he was looking for you. And we are here today, a part of his kingdom today, because of a good and loving God who was looking for us, who was longing for us before we ever thought to look for him. We're here today because he found us, because he called us. Where are you? I know that's why I'm here today. I was a 20-year-old alcoholic who had no hope, and he found me, and he changed me. He is the one longing for us. Adam, Eve, where are you? The first effect of sin is not death. Death is the end result of sin. But the first effect of sin is separation. It's separation. So now, man and woman are separated from God. And sometimes we think of an angry God saying, you broke the rules, get out of the garden. Actually, the word that is used in the Hebrew for God put them out of the garden is the same word used throughout Scripture for divorce. God gave them their divorce. If you don't want to be with me, if you don't want to hide with me, I will never force you to stay with me. I will never force you to stay in my presence. If you want to leave, I'm going to allow you to leave. God gave them what they asked for. And they're out of the garden. They're separated from God. And what happens if you are not in right relationship with God, fundamentally, you cannot be in right relationship with one another. When your relationship with God breaks down, every relationship in life starts to break down. So man and woman are now separated from God. And what happens? The very next story, Cain kills his brother Abel. Why? They're not in relationship with God. Now notice God's still there. He's still there talking to them. They're out of the garden, and God doesn't stay in the garden. God follows them into the world. Isn't that amazing? God follows them into the world. He's still trying to communicate. He's still trying to connect. But fundamentally, the relationship is flawed. It is broken. They are no longer in deep relationship with God. And so Cain kills his brother Abel. Families start to fight against family. Cities start to fight against city. Nations start to fight against nation. People start to fight against people. The world is at war and conflict with one another. Fundamentally, the Old Testament tells us because we are not in right relationship with God. That's the fundamental story of history. When people are not in right relationship with God, all relationships start to break down. It's broken. A world that is broken. But in the middle of this, where's God? He's right there. He's right there talking to Cain and Abel. He's revealing himself to a man named Abraham. He reveals himself to a man named Moses, build me a tabernacle. I want to go with a people so that I can reveal myself to all people. And we are now a people that God uses to reveal himself to all people. He said, I want a tabernacle that I want to go with you. But in the tabernacle, there's going to have to be a veil of separation because of your sinfulness, of your, of your rebellion, we can't be directly connected, but I want to be there. So God's with them. They get to the promised land, build a temple, but the veil is still there. And then along comes Jesus. Can somebody say amen? That's the part where you say amen. I'm from the south. I need an amen. And along comes Jesus. And when Jesus comes, it said, and the word became flesh and dwelt 
among them. That's what John says. And the word that is used for dwelt in the Greek is the word he tabernacled among us. That the presence of God came back. The temple by now has been destroyed. They've built it again, but but uh, it's not really a place where God is seen much anymore. It's not where God is heard from anymore. There hasn't been a prophet in over 400 years. No one's heard the voice of the Lord in 400 years. And yet, here comes Jesus to tabernacle, to dwell. And the presence of God is fully revealed. Not veiled. Jesus is not a veiled tabernacle. He's an open tabernacle, spreading the presence of God out through the world. And then Jesus dies. And I want you to see this. When Jesus died, the first effect of the death of Jesus is literally all creation groaned. He said creation started to shake. And as creation started to shake, it said the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. The veil was over 70 foot high. Symbolically, no one could reach it. And the veil was not torn from the bottom where we started the tear. It was torn from the top that God made a way to Himself. And when Jesus died, He opened the way again to say, come back into the garden. Come and walk with me again. Come and be with me again. Come and experience what it's like to live the life you were created for again. Not just to be good, but to be very good. To be a walking, emblematic presence of God in this world. Be a part of His kingdom. Come and be a part again. Now all of this, I said to get to this, Acts chapter 2. So now you have the first church is gathered together. The veil's been torn. They've come back together. These are people who've come into the presence of God. They've been transformed with God. And the transformation in the presence of God started to do something. It wasn't just a personal transformation that made individuals holy. Because in the West, we are a very individualistic people. We think of salvation, sanctification, transformation in very individual terms. What does my life look like? Am I personally holy? But there was something far deeper than this that started to happen. In Acts chapter 2, we're told in verse 42, the church started coming together. And they did a lot of stuff we guys have done today. They prayed together. They worshiped together. They fellowshiped together. They broke bread together. Uh, So we had coffee together. Close. So we're, we're doing stuff together. We're together. But there's something unique about the early church that I think is lost. Here, here's the, here's the only thing that is talked about at length when they talk about the early church. Everything else is just a word. They prayed, they worshiped. But, but here's what's expounded on of the early church. Acts chapter 2, verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything. Say with me, everything. Not tithing. Not a gift. All the believers were together and had everything. Say it again. Everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone. Say with me, anyone. Anyone who is in need, not just my relatives, not just my family, not just people who are in the church, but, but anyone who is in need. Acts chapter 4. This is the second time it talks about the early church coming together. Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared 
everything, say with me everything, they shared everything they had. So now you have this community of people that have come together in Christ and fundamentally they start to review relationships differently. They start to say, because we've been made right with God, fundamentally that affects my relationship with you. Because I acknowledge that God is my father, I also have to acknowledge that you are my brother and you are my sister and fundamentally that changes our relationship. The early church started to use those terms when my brothers and sisters who are in Christ. And for them, it wasn't kind of terms of endearment. It wasn't just a way of showing respect. It was a way of denoting a new relationship that we have together because of Christ. One of our great Indian theologians, he made this statement, the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. Because me and my brother share a mother and father, there is a connection of DNA that makes us close. But for you and I, the blood of Jesus runs through us both. The blood of Jesus connects us in a way that, that even familiar relationships can't connect. That that's even thicker. It's even tighter. It's even more of a responsibility. We are connected in Christ. I speak at a lot of colleges. I'm actually going tomorrow to Minnesota to speak at a Chi Alpha conference. And when I'm in speaking in colleges, I'll go into the dorm sometimes. And if you find a refrigerator in the dorm, you open the door and you will find everything in the refrigerator has somebody's name on it. Because... If you're staying in a college dorm and you got food and you want to eat it, you got to claim it, right? So if mama sends you brownies, you better hide it under the bed because it's going to be gone really quick. I went, I just wanted a little bit of milk with my coffee. Somebody had a line on the milk with a date on it. I'm going to know if somebody took a splash of my milk. Because when you're in college, you got to claim your stuff. But in my house, I don't allow any of my children to write their name on any food. So if my kids bring home extra pizza, and the next day they ask me, Dad, what happened to my pizza? I'm going to say, it was in our house, and I ate it. Wasn't your pizza, it was our pizza. And I choose to eat it. <laughs> You don't get to have special things in the house because family shares everything. Say with me, everything. Family shares everything. And we can't live like strangers in a house where it's mine and yours. One of the great burdens of my life is I have three sons and we all have the same shoe size. It's tragic. If I'm ever the last one out of the house, I get the shoes with holes in them. And then I'll ask my sons, son, do you need a new pair of tennis shoes? And they said, no. And I said, absolutely you don't need because the shoes I just bought for me, you're wearing them. So that's why you don't need new shoes, because you're wearing my shoes. But that's what it means to be family. What it means to be family is we share everything we have. That's part of the essence of family. 
that, that, that in my family, me and my wife don't have our own accounts and we don't have our own money and we don't have our own stuff because we are family. We are bound together in a covenant relationship together. And because of that covenant relationship, there has never been a night that one person in my family went to bed hungry. Never. There's been a time that all five of us went to bed hungry, but never a night that one went to bed hungry. Because if we have, we share everything, say with me everything, everything that we have. This is what it means to be the people of God. That we are a people who because of Christ, we have been restored in our relationship with God. And because I'm in right relationship with God, I'm also in right relationship with all of His sons and daughters. There's something fundamentally that changes so that our greatest testimony to the world should be the unity that we have together. Jesus said, they're going to know you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. Not by your messages, not by your sermons, but by the way you show God Christ agape love to one another. It should flow out of every relationship in our life. But this is hard. How do we do it? Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify of the resurrection of the Lord, and God's grace was so powerfully at work among them all. Before you read the next verse, stop there. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. How would you finish it? Blind eyes were open. The lame walk. The deaf began to hear. The dead were raised. Multitudes were fed. How would you end it? Here's how the Bible ends it. And God's grace was so powerfully at work among them all that there were no needy persons among them. Can you imagine the grace of God so powerfully at work in the church that we would care about our neighbor as much as we care about our own children? Can you imagine God's grace being so powerfully poured out among us that we would care about India as much as we'd care about our own community? Let me tell you, that doesn't happen through human effort. It only happens through the grace of God. That God fills us up with a measure of His grace that we can begin to love the way He loves. Because I can promise you this, that God loves the children of India as much as he loves your child. God does it. God loves Saudi Arabia as much as he loves America. God does it. And so if God does it and God lives in me, his grace can begin to work in me that I can care about others as much as I care about my own. But it only happens through grace. When I was living in Laos, I had a neighbor who was sick. It looked like he's dying. For months, I'd seen him. He could barely come out of the house. So one day I go, my son had to go to the hospital, and I ask him, hey, do you want to go to the hospital with us? So we go to the hospital. A very poor man, has no car, only owns two shirts. So he put his good shirt on. He gets in the truck with me. We go to the hospital. They do some tests on him. I went back a few days later, and the doctors just put the results of the test down and looked and shook his head and said, nothing I can do. Take him home and let him die. Just that blunt. And it just, it just like struck me like somebody hit me in the face. I said, what do you mean take him home and let him die? He said, look at this man. He's poor. 
He has no money. He has no car. He said, look at our hospital. Literally, we're sitting in the emergency room and there's chicken wire for where the windows should be. There's no windows. There's just chicken wire. That's the hospital. So I don't want to give you these grand illusions of hospital when I say we're at the hospital. He said, look around you. He said, we have no facilities. We have nothing. This man's kidneys are failing. The closest hospital away that could treat him is a 12-hour drive away in Thailand. This man has no car. He has no money. He has no ability to get there. There's no way he can do this. Best for him to live out his days at peace with his family. No need to give false hope. So I asked him, I said, how much money are we talking about? And he said, well, he gave me a figure to get started was like $20,000. And I was like, man, I don't have $20,000. I wish I could help. So I take him home. We lived this little dirt lane. We lived in opposite houses in this village on this dirt lane. So I parked my car. We're getting ready to get out. And I touched him. I said, Mr. Oat, I know you're a staunch Buddhist. And you know I love Jesus and I serve Jesus. And I want you to know I'm going to be praying for you that God's going to heal you. I believe Jesus heals, and I believe He can heal you. So I'm going to start praying and believing with you that God's going to heal you. So I prayed for Him right there. That night, I'm in my bed, I'm getting ready to sleep, and I thought, man, this is serious. So I got down beside my bed and knelt beside the bed, and I started to pray, God, would you please heal my neighbor, Mr. Oat? And when those words came out of my mouth, I just felt the Spirit speak to me. Not an audible voice, just, I just felt the question in my mind. What would you do if he was your father? And I started to think about it a minute. Man, what would I do if he was my father? I said, well, I guess if he was my father, I'd start with my credit cards. I'd max them out. <laughs> Once that's done, I'd take some loans. I'd borrow money. I'd, I'd mortgage my house. I'd sell something. I'd do whatever. But if there was any chance my father could live, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't do everything I could do. How many of you are, are there with me? If I didn't do everything I could do, I couldn't live with myself. I'd rather be poor and broke and having done everything I could do than just to say, ah, can't do anything and let him die. So then I felt the Spirit speak to me. Whatever you do for your father, do it for him. So the next morning I get up and I go to his house and I said, Mr. Oda, I'm so sorry. Yesterday I treated you like a stranger. I said, from the time I came to this village, I had been living there about four years. I said, you helped me move in. You introduced me to people. You've helped me. You've been there for me. And I, I apologize. I treated you yesterday like a stranger. I didn't treat you like family. I said, I'm going to treat you like I would my father. And if this was happening to my dad, I'd do everything I could to save him. So we're going we're gonna to do what we can. So get ready. Tomorrow we're going to Thailand. So we packed up in the car. We drove 12 hours to Thailand. Went to the hospital. We spent a week in the hospital. They started treatment for him. And they told him for the rest of his life, as long as he lives, he's going to have to be back here at least once a month for the rest of his life. And, uh, and, and so we started the payments and we started everything going. And uh, I can tell you, it put me in debt and had a lot of troubles. But over 12 years later, he's still alive today. He's still alive. But two years after we started this, uh, we felt like the Lord leading us back to India. So I go to my neighbor and I talk with him. I introduce him to my Lao friends and I said, hey, the hospital has my information. They'll bill me. Don't worry about the hospital. These new friends of mine, they also love Jesus. They're going to be here. They're going to take you to the hospital once a month. We got everything covered and we prayed for him. And uh, the next day I'm getting in my car to go to the airport. I'm leaving. I'm going to India. Getting ready to get in the car. And this little, little boy comes and grabs me and said, hey, Mr. Oat said he wants to see you one more time before you leave. And I'm late for the airport. So I go running into his house. 
And uh, he's laying in the bed, and his wife is in the kitchen, and me and my wife come in, and, and he pushes himself. He can't even stand anymore. He can't walk. He just pushes himself up on the bed. And he looks at me, and he points his finger at me. He said, before you go, I want you to know, you're my son. And he looked at my wife, and he said, you're my daughter. You're family. And families worship the same God. So before you leave, would you pray with me? I want to serve Jesus. And his wife stepped out from the kitchen and said, you're also my children. I also want to follow Jesus. They have a church that meets in their home today. They're leading people to Jesus. Lives are being changed because of a simple idea to treat the world like family. Now, I can imagine your opposition to this would be, man, that's good, but you can't do that for everybody. My retort to you is, start with somebody. Stop worrying about what you can't do and start doing something with what you can do. Start asking the Lord for opportunity to treat somebody like family. Ask the Lord to give you the grace to look through different eyes at the world around you. Not as friends and foes. Not as enemies and partners. But to look at the world the way God looks at the world. Children who are inside. Children who are abandoned. But everyone created in the image of God. Created to have a relationship with God. The people of God. God is trying to bring His people back to Himself. And He wants to use us, His sons and daughters, to be a part of that. So why is it that two thousand years after the death of Christ, that one third of humanity has yet to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? How is it possible that when most of the world throws away food every night, that millions go to bed hungry? How is it possible? Because I'm not my brother's keeper. I'm not responsible. Why are you asking me? But I want to tell you, that when you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, it starts to change. And you can no longer look out at the world and say, am I my brother's keeper? You have to look out and say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And Jesus is sending me on his behalf with all authority to all the earth to bring the goodness of God to every corner of this earth. I am my brother's keeper. I am my neighbor's keeper. I am Paul's most keeper. I am Washington's keeper. I am America's keeper. I am India and Saudi Arabia and Mexico. I am responsible for the world around me. I am my brother's keeper. Recently, when Afghanistan, a couple years ago, I don't know how many of you saw the images when Afghanistan is falling. And there was this image of this young man literally holding on to the tire of an airplane as it took off. Can you imagine being so desperate, so hopeless, that holding on to the tire of an airplane as it takes off seems like a better option than staying where you are. Can you imagine how bad that's got to be? Absolutely hopeless. And I saw that, and my heart was broken. I've never felt called to Afghanistan. I've never been to Afghanistan. I don't know anything about Afghanistan. But when I saw that, something struck a chord. 
I am my brother's keeper. I'm responsible some way, somehow. And so I just started praying. All I could do is pray. I don't know anybody. All I could do is pray. Two days later, I talked to one of our team leaders in India and said, man, I just can't get out of my mind. Just Afghanistan's on my heart. We got to do something about Afghanistan. And the team leader told me, he said, that's amazing. He said, today on the streets in Mumbai, I met an Afghan refugee. And he gave me his phone number. and We're in contact. I said, great, introduce me. So we got introduced. And we found out there were 13,000 Afghan refugees in India. And so through this man, we contacted people. One of our churches opened up. We brought in 500 heads of household, Afghan people who were head of their household. 500 of them came to church. And we talked to them about what's happening, what their needs were, how we could help them. We preached the gospel to them. We prayed for them. We started in community and relationship with them. And I can tell you today, we know of over a thousand Afghan refugees in India who are in Christ today. And we have four churches that have been planted. Just because I am my brother's keeper, I'm responsible. But we're going to need grace. I have three grown sons, and I'm going to close. I have three grown sons, and they're no different than your kids. Just because we're missionaries doesn't mean they're different. They have struggles. And there are times when my kids are struggling. I just can't go to sleep at night. You ever been there? Man, I just like groaning for my kids. Nights where I wake up in the middle of the night, it's just so heavy on my heart. And I'm praying for my son. First thing in the morning is the light flips on in my head and I start praying again. Throughout the day, I pray. It's just there. Nobody has to remind me. Nobody has to give me a message. Just because that's how much I love my sons. And I started praying about a year ago. God, help me to love your sons, your daughters, as much as I love my son. So every time I pray for my sons, I pray for the sons and daughters of India. I pray for sons and daughters around the world. You see, while I'm grieving and praying for my son today, my son has hope. But millions of people in Saudi Arabia have no one that groan over them. Millions of people in Ukraine today. I mean, when the war first started, we were all bought in and we're praying and we're thinking, it's kind of gone. You know, I was thinking when it mentioned about the football player who almost died. Man, that happened in a time frame where we could grieve and rejoice. But uh, sometimes we get compassion fatigue and it's just like, uh, Ukraine's kind of something that happened out there, but there's still people dying there. But we just don't have that capacity of love that God has. And that's where grace comes in. And what I want to pray today is the grace of God would so change our hearts that we would have the capacity of God to love the way that God loves. That we would care about the other as much as we care about our own until there is no other anymore. Would you stand with me this morning? And just lift your hands and surrender to the Lord. God, we pray today that you would help us. We confess, Lord, our capacity of love is small. 
We have people we really love. Sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, friends, neighbors. We have people we really love, but we have a whole lot of people we rarely think about. And God, I pray today for your grace to so powerfully work in our hearts today. Your grace to be so evident in our lives that it could be said one day, there is not a person who's not had opportunity to experience grace in Christ. Not a person without the opportunity to be fed. Not a person without the opportunity of a home. That your grace would so powerfully work among us that it would be able to be said one day there was not one needy person in Paulsbo. We know people are going to make choices and sometimes they don't even receive the good you want to give, but to everyone who's willing. God, we want to be your hands extended in our community and in our world. But God, we can't do it without your grace. And I pray, God, let it start with one. I pray this week, Lord, would you put somebody on our heart? Not as a, a program, but Lord, just a genuine relationship that we can express your love. Show us somebody that needs you this week. Show us somebody that's broken, somebody that's hurting, somebody that's low and down, somebody that we can embrace as you have embraced us. Lord, I pray for restored relationships in our community. Lord, I pray that we would not look out and see an enemy in any direction. That everywhere we look, all we would see is people created in your image. Some far away, some near, but all created in your image. And help us, Lord, to embrace the world the way you have embraced us. Lord, I pray for your grace to work through us. And as your grace works, I pray that it would lead to the transformation of our community and communities around the world. In Jesus' name. Amen.